Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. Uh, wow, another episode out so soon. My god, what's going on? Uh, I wrote this episode a while ago. Uh, that's what's going on. Anyway, I won't do a very long introduction this time, but as always, please like the Facebook page, Excuse Me History, uh, rate the podcast on your apps that you listen to this, if that is possible. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast for all updates, which will be coming up more frequently in the future, not every four months. And uh, maybe if if I get my act together, we'll get this uh, th- we'll get this season finished before the anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Maybe something special uh, for that. Last episode, we talked about the Confederate attacks on the wheat field and the peach orchard both of which had nearly achieved a breakthrough. I think I left off when General Dan Sickles uh, was wounded in the leg, and we're basically just going to pick up right where we left off. And without further ado, let's start the show. Orchard Salient had collapsed. Most of Barksdale's Mississippians had turned northward and were attacking up the Emmitsburg Road against Brewster's Brigade, while Brigadier General Cadmus Wilcox's Alabamians were hitting Carr's Brigade from the west. Cadmus Wilcox was a 39-year-old Tennessean, graduated in the vaunted West Point class of 1846, 54th out of 59. He served as an infantry officer in the Mexican War, and afterward was a tactics instructor at West Point. During a year-long sabbatical spent in Europe, he studied infantry tactics, and then later wrote an instructional manual for the Army on rifles and rifle firing. After Tennessee's secession, he resigned from the U.S. Army and was given a commission as a colonel of an Alabama infantry regiment. His brother, John Allen Wilcox, former U.S. congressman, served as a representative from Texas in the First Confederate Congress, and later served as a staff officer for General John Magruder. Shortly after the First Battle of Bull Run, Cadmus Wilcox was promoted to brigade command, and nearly two years later held that same position. Despite his immense experience and qualifications, he'd been passed over many times for promotion. He was beloved by his soldiers and nicknamed Uncle Billy Fixin. His brigade was the first of fighting Dick Anderson's to join the assault on July 2nd. To the north, two more of Anderson's brigades marched toward the remaining Federal line still defending the Emmitsburg Road. To the south, four Confederate brigades all converged to attack Caldwell's division, which had just captured the wheat field, Stony Hill, and Rose's Woods. Brooks's brigade, which had advanced the farthest, was hit in front by Sims' brigade, and on their left by Anderson's brigade. Colonel Brook wrote after the battle, quote, Both my aides being wounded, and myself severely bruised, I with great difficulty was able to maintain a proper knowledge of the enemy. Being notified about this time that a heavy column of the enemy was coming upon my left, I immediately took measures to meet them, sending word to that effect to the general commanding. I held them at bay for some time, when word was brought to me that my right was being turned, and finding no troops coming to my support, and finding that unless I retired, all would be killed or captured, I reluctantly gave the order to retire, and in good order the whole command came off the field slowly, and firing as they retired, succeeded in bringing off nearly all their wounded. Brooks's right was being turned by Kershaw's brigade, whose South Carolinians had renewed the battle against Zook's brigade and the Irish brigade on Stony Hill. These two understrength units had their energy sapped during the first fight for the hill. Now they were outnumbered and the rebels had the momentum. 
Major St. Clair Mulholland, the Irish commander of the 116th Pennsylvania, wrote after the war, quote, Over the little valley in the immediate front, one could see the enemy massed and preparing for another attack. The dead of the 110th Pennsylvania Volunteers lay directly in front, on the ground which that command had vacated but a half hour before, and one young boy lay outstretched on a large rock with his musket still grasped in his hand, his pale, calm face upturned to the sunny sky, the warm blood still flowing from a hole in his forehead and running in a red stream over the gray stone. The young hero had just given his life for his country. A sweet, childish face it was, lips parted in a smile, those still lips on which the mother's kisses had so lately fallen, warm and tender. The writer never looked on a soldier slain without feeling that he gazed upon relics of a saint, but the little boy lying with his blood coloring the soil of his own state, and his young heart stilled forever, seemed more like an angel form than any of the others. Somebody's watching and waiting for him, yearning to hold him again to her heart, and there he lies with his blue eyes dim, and the smiling childlike lips apart. As the regiment stood in line, waiting for the foe in front to advance, a column of the enemy, supposed to be Sims and Wofford's brigades, passed through the peach orchard, formed a line in rear, and began to advance just as the line in front began moving forward. Orders were given for the division to retire, and under the circumstances it was done in fairly good order." Unquote. As Mulholland described the Confederates' renewed attacks on their front, while Wofford's troops smashed the flank of Zook's brigade and their right was turned. All three of Caldwell's brigades still in the fight broke and fell back through the wheat field. Not long before, Caldwell had requested reinforcements from Colonel Schweitzer, whose brigade had been ordered to abandon the Stony Hill earlier in the fight. After receiving orders from General Barnes, Schweitzer led his troops back toward the wheat field, but not long after they arrived, they came under fire from the direction of the Stony Hill. The brigade's color bearer, Private Edward Martin, said to Schweitzer, quote, Colonel, I'll be damned if I don't think we are faced the wrong way. The Rebs are up there in the woods behind us on the right." Unquote. Schweitzer's men had marched into the middle of the closing pincers of four attacking rebel brigades. He ordered two of his regiments, 4th Michigan and 62nd Pennsylvania, to change front so that they faced the woods of the Stony Hill, and one lone regiment, the 32nd Massachusetts, faced Rose's Woods. General Barnes watched from a few hundred yards to the rear and sent a courier to order Schweitzer to retreat, but the rider never found him. Schweitzer sent his own courier to request help from Barnes, but likewise couldn't locate the division commander. One of Barnes' staff aides, Lieutenant Charles Ross, remarked, quote, There goes the 2nd Brigade. We may as well bid it goodbye. Unquote. Kershaw's men emerged from the woods and attacked ferociously. Colonel Harrison Jeffords, the 28-year-old commander of the 4th Michigan Infantry, saw that the regiment's color bearer had fallen. A few months earlier, he'd been presented this new flag, meant to replace the regiment's old tattered colors by several women of Monroe, Michigan. Several times, he repeated a pledge to defend it. When he saw it lying on the ground of the wheat field, he shouted to his brother and Lieutenant Michael Vreeland to help him recover it. The three rushed forward, and an intense melee began over the star-spangled banner. Both his brother and Lieutenant Vreeland were wounded multiple times. Major Jairus Hall stepped in and shot the rebel soldiers who wounded Jeffords' brother. Another Rev sprinted forward and drove his bayonet into Jeffords' abdomen, leaving a nasty wound. Harrison Jeffords died at 4 a.m. the following morning. His last words were allegedly, Mother, which he repeated several times. He was the highest-ranking commissioned officer of the Civil War to die from a bayonet wound. Schweitzer's brigade was attacked on three sides. His horse had been shot, and he nearly took a bullet to the head, but it missed by inches and went through his hat. 32nd Massachusetts was falling back due to pressure from Ty Anderson's Georgians. 
Schweitzer all but accused Colonel George L. Prescott of cowardice, and Prescott ordered his Bay Staters to halt and fire. The rebels returned that fire, cutting down dozens of his men. For his bravery, Colonel Prescott was rewarded with a mini-ball to the face, a wound which he luckily survived. After a short but intense struggle, Schweitzer's brigade retreated from the wheat field. But the battle there was not yet over. Two more Union brigades would enter the fight. It was Ayers' division. Brigadier General Romain Ayers was a 37-year-old upstate New York native and West Point graduate of the class of 1847. He spent the early part of the Civil War as an artillery officer, but left that branch because of lack of opportunities for advancement. The move worked in his favor. He was promoted to brigade command shortly before Chancellorsville, the only battle in which he commanded any infantry unit before July 2nd. Then, on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg, his division commander, George Sykes, succeeded General Meade as 5th Corps commander, and it was Ayers who was promoted to replace him. His two brigade commanders were some of the oldest officers in the Army, Colonels Hannibal Day and Sidney Burbank. Day was nearly 60 and had spent virtually his entire life in the Army. His father, Dr. Sylvester Day, was an Army surgeon. While his father was serving at Fort Mitchell Mackinac during the War of 1812, both of them were taken prisoner by the British and held at Fort Detroit. Hannibal Day would enter West Point and graduate in 1823, which meant that he'd been in the Army 40 years when he led his brigade for the first time at Gettysburg on July 2nd. Sidney Burbank was 55, and like Day, his father, Lieutenant Colonel Sullivan Burbank, had been in the pre-war U.S. Army. Burbank graduated from West Point in 1829 and also fought in various Indian wars and in Mexico. Both were typical career Army officers, not particularly brilliant, but knowledgeable and experienced enough to follow orders and do their duty. Each of their brigades were made up of five regular U.S. Army regiments, the only such units in the Army of the Potomac. Colonel Burbank's 900 regulars led the march from just north of Little Round Top toward the wheat field. An anxious lieutenant in the 17th U.S. Infantry kept shouting, Give him hell, men, as he crossed Plum Run. He was told twice by his company commander to shut up and stay in line, but the excited fellow kept shouting, Give him hell, while waving his sword in the air, until his sword scabbard tripped him, causing the lieutenant to fall into a mud puddle. I've had a couple of annoying bosses in my life who I've seen do really dumb things like that. One time when I was working at a restaurant, I had a manager who was trying to walk into the wrong door coming as I was coming out of the kitchen, and I kicked the door in his face, uh, and that was really funny. And he and it was totally his fault. He, re, he walked into the wrong door. Or another time I had a boss who uh, <laughs> uh, I was working as a tour guide at a botanical garden, and uh, my manager was trying to step onto a boat and just totally missed it and just <laughs> did a pencil dive right into a lake. He was very upset about that, but we all thought it was really funny. So I can imagine how the privates of the 17th U.S. Infantry felt when an overly zealous officer did a face plant in the dirt. General Ayers met with Caldwell just east of the wheat field, where Burbank's brigade had taken up a position behind a stone wall at the edge of Rose's Woods and Wheatfield. Caldwell was anxious for him to order his two brigades into the fight to support his faltering division. One of Ayers' aides, Lieutenant William Powell, said to Caldwell, quote, General, you had better look out. The line in front is giving way. Unquote. The general responded, quote, That's not so, sir. Those are my troops being relieved. Unquote. Ayers and Caldwell continued to converse until Lieutenant Powell interjected again, this time speaking to his own commander. Quote, General Ayers, you will have to look out for your command. I don't care what anyone says. Those troops in front are running away. Unquote. This was when Caldwell's three brigades broke. Caldwell then quickly spurred his horse and rode off to see the condition of his troops. General Ayers ordered Burbank's brigade to advance. 
They marched forward and then wheeled left into the wheat field when they were struck by Anderson on their left and Kershaw and Wofford on their right. Like Schweitzer, they marched right into the trap as three brigades closed in on both of their flanks and quickly routed Burbank's regulars. Despite their reputation as professionals, there was little they could do in that situation, except retreat or be annihilated. After a short fight that lasted only about 15 or 30 minutes, the regulars were ordered back to the cover of the woods and the stone wall, where they attempted to make a defensive stand. But Kershaw and Wofford's men kept coming on their right and outflanked them once more. Day's brigade was behind Burbank, but unable to actually deploy onto the battlefield and was also forced to retreat. Lieutenant Colonel William Fox, an infantry officer in the First Corps and later a historian who wrote about New York's role at Gettysburg, said of the U.S. regulars after the war, quote, They moved off the field in admirable style, with well-aligned ranks, facing about at time to deliver their fire and check pursuit. Recrossing Plum Run Valley under a storm of bullets that told fearfully on their ranks, they returned to their original position. In this action, the regulars sustained severe losses, but gave ample evidence of the fighting qualities, discipline, and steadiness under fire which made them the pattern and admiration of the entire army." Unquote. Burbank's brigade suffered nearly 50% casualties in less than an hour, 80 killed, 340 wounded, and 30 missing. Day's brigade, which spent more time in reserve and retreating, still lost 45 killed, 320 wounded, and 20 missing or captured. The time was nearing 8 p.m., four hours after the fight began at Devil's Den and Little Round Top. Rose's Woods and Wheatfield had changed hands several times, but now it was controlled by McClaw's and Hood's divisions. All the federal troops in the area had retreated east of Plum Run, toward Cemetery Ridge or Little Round Top, with Wofford's brigade continuing their pursuit. To the north, Barksdale and Wilcox's brigades mopped up what was left of the federal resistance near the Emmitsburg Road. All that remained were Brewster and Carr's brigades of the 3rd Corps. As Wilcox's Alabamians charged into Carr's brigade, they were joined on their left by General Edward Perry's brigade. Perry wasn't present at the battle, because he'd come down with typhoid fever just before the campaign began. So Colonel David Lang led the brigade, which was unique in that its three regiments were the only ones representing the state of Florida and the Army of Northern Virginia. Lang was only 25 years old, and before the war had attended the Georgia Military Institute and worked as a land surveyor. Now, for the first time, he was leading a brigade into the final stretch of one of the most intense fights of the entire war. And it was at that moment that a Confederate victory seemed possible, if not imminent to those involved in the attack. Colonel Porter Alexander later wrote, quote, Providence was indeed taking the proper view, unquote. But when Alexander rode with his artillery battalion as they went forward to support the infantry, he arrived at the coveted high ground at the Peach Orchard, and saw that they'd not smashed through the main Union line. They nearly destroyed the entire 3rd Corps, and drove off almost all the reinforcements sent by the 2nd and 5th, but a few hundred yards to the east was Cemetery Ridge, and more Federal infantry and artillery. Obviously there was still a lot more work to be done than the leaders of the Army of Northern Virginia expected, but time was running out. The sun was beginning to set behind South Mountain to the west. Hood's division was basically wiped out from the assaults in the Devil's Den, Little Roundtop, and the Wheatfield. Then there was McClaw's division. All four brigades had entered the fight, but Barksdale and Wofford's men still had some strength left in them. Anderson's division, which had nearly 7,000 fresh infantrymen, would be necessary to keep up the momentum of the Confederate attack. Besides the growing darkness, the main issues they now faced were the breakdown of unit cohesion and casualties amongst the regimental and brigade commanders. Regiments were being separated from brigades and then fighting independently. One such example was the 21st Mississippi of Barksdale's brigade, who continued their advance eastward as the rest of the brigades swung to the north. 
The Federal Battery Commanders were having a rough time getting their artillery pieces carried off to safety. As more and more rebel soldiers swarmed the area, they became prime targets. They fired their last rounds of canister before they were completely surrounded and began to limber the guns and caissons so they could be dragged away to safety. But several had to be left behind because too many horses had been shot down. Captain Frank Moran, a wounded officer of the 73rd New York, wandered around the battlefield after the action had moved to the north and east. He later recalled that, quote, The poor horses had fared badly, and as we passed scores of ungazetted heroes stood upon their maimed limbs, regarding us with a silent look of reproach that was almost human in expression, unquote. The Mississippians came across Clark's battery, who earlier had held off Kershaw's first attack. They now were readying to get out of Dodge, but before they had gotten away, a rebel soldiers yelled at them, Halt, you Yankee sons of bitches! We want those guns! Corporal Samuel Innes yelled back, Go to hell! We want to use them yet a while! Nearby soldiers of the 68th Pennsylvania came to Clark's assistance and fired a musket volley at the Mississippians, causing them to halt and return fire. This gave Clark's New Jerseyans enough time to haul off their pieces. Captain Clark would write a few weeks after the battle, quote, By this time our infantry on both sides had fallen back, as had also several batteries, when, having no supports, I deemed it best to retire, which I did, to near the ground occupied the previous evening. In the battle of the following day, the battery was not engaged. I was obliged to leave one caisson and one caisson body on the field for want of horses to bring them off, but subsequently recovered them. My loss in men was as follows. One man killed, 16 men wounded, and three missing, two of whom are known to be prisoners. I had 17 horses killed, and five disabled so badly that I was obliged to abandon them. The conduct of the officers and men, I can only say that it was in the highest degree commendable for courage and bravery." Unquote. In the course of the battle on July 2nd, it was claimed that Clark's battery fired 1,300 rounds. The last of the Union batteries to leave the area was the 9th Massachusetts Light Artillery, led by Captain John Bigelow. Bigelow was only 22. He'd been a senior at Harvard when he left the university to enlist in the Union Army earlier in the war. His brigade commander, Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery, had ordered the artillery to fall back to a new line where they'd reform. But the 21st Mississippi was coming from the west, and some of Kershaw's infantry was closing in from the south. Porter Alexander's artillery had deployed to the Peach Orchard and was firing shells and solid shot at his position as well. Bigelow figured that if they stopped firing at their attackers, they'd quickly swarm his guns before they could get off. He decided that they would retire by prolong, meaning that the guns would be pulled away as they were loading and firing. It was a difficult battlefield maneuver, but it bought them enough time to get away as their guns fired round after round at McClaw's soldiers. They made it to an opening in the fence on the Trossel farm, through which they needed to pull the guns. Just when they were about to limber up and make their escape, Lieutenant Colonel McGilvery rode up to Captain Bigelow and informed him that there was no infantry support nearby. He told Bigelow that he was to, quote, hold his position as long as possible at all hazards, unquote. I think if he had a dollar for every time a Union officer said that to a subordinate on July 2nd, he'd be a very wealthy person. Bigelow was tasked with holding off several Confederate regiments single-handedly to prevent the capture of the rest of the artillery brigade, and piled up the remaining ammo near the guns to make reloading as quick and easy as possible, and readied their pieces. When the skirmishers of the 21st Mississippi came into their view again, they unleashed as much canister as they could. Bigelow attempted to allow some of his guns to get away, but only two escaped. The rebel infantry closed on them from both left and right. Six Mississippi soldiers fired a volley, 
One bullet hit Bigelow and another hit his horse. Bigelow later said, quote, The enemy crowded to the very muzzles of Lieutenant Erickson's and Whitaker's sections, but were blown away by the canister. Sergeant after sergeant was struck down. Horses were plunging and laying all around. Bullets now came in on all sides, for the enemy had turned my flanks. The air was dark with smoke. The enemy were yelling like demons, yet my men kept up a rapid fire, with their guns each time loaded to the muzzle." Unquote. A Mississippi color bearer climbed up on one of the guns and waved the flag triumphantly. Sergeant Charles Dodge, chief of Bigelow's second piece, fired off one last round before he was mortally wounded. Lieutenant Erickson attempted to save the guns of his section, but as he rode on his horse, he was killed after he received five rebel mini-balls. The battery's surviving horses scattered. Ultimately, eight men and officers of the 9th Massachusetts Battery were killed, 18 were wounded, and two were missing. 45 horses were killed. Four of the six guns were captured. Bigelow would later boast that his battery had fired three tons of ammunition and 92 rounds of canister before they were overrun. Captain Bigelow rode off on his horse, but the intense action and the bullet wound he'd received sapped all his strength, and he fell to the ground. Private Charles Reed, the battery's bugler, and Private John Kelly, Bigelow's orderly, managed to get him back on his horse. Despite being caught in a crossfire, Reed rode with Bigelow at a walking pace to the east until the two had reached safety. Bigelow would survive and return to action later in the year, though his wounds would plague him for the rest of the war, and he was discharged from the Army in January of 1869 at the rank of Major. He would go on to settle in Minneapolis, Minnesota and work as a machinery designer and inventor. Charles Reed received the Medal of Honor for his actions on July 2nd. He too survived the war and would go on to become an artist. Commander of the 21st Mississippi was Colonel Benjamin Grubb Humphreys, who at the age of 54 was among the oldest regimental commanders in the Army of Northern Virginia. The Mississippian might have been a brigade or division commander, maybe even higher, for he had attended West Point as part of the same class that also included future Confederate Army commanders such as Joe Johnston and R.E. Lee. Humphreys failed to graduate from the academy as he had been expelled in 1827 for his participation in the Eggnog Riot during Christmas of 1826. What began as a party in one of the West Point barracks after cadets smuggled in a large quantity of whiskey quickly grew into a near mutiny involving 70 drunken cadets, approximately a third of those enrolled at West Point. During the riot, they attacked and threatened several officers and destroyed a great deal of property in the barracks. Cadets implicated in the riot included future Supreme Court Justice and Confederate Assistant Secretary of War John Archibald Campbell and none other than Jefferson Davis, though neither were court-martialed or expelled. Robert E. Lee lived up to his reputation as the marble model and didn't participate in the party or the riot, though he did testify in defense of several cadets. Humphreys was arrested several weeks after the riot and expelled after a court-martial. He eventually returned to Mississippi where he became a wealthy slave owner, managed a cotton plantation, and served as a state senator. After capturing Clark's battery, Colonel Humphreys hoped to rejoin the rest of his brigade, but another federal battery opened fire on their position and Wofford's brigade to the south, so the 21st continued east and attacked Lieutenant Malbone Watson's Battery I of the 5th U.S. Artillery. Watson, who graduated from West Point only two years prior, ordered his gunners to fire shell and canister at Humphrey's regiment until they too were overrun. Watson had been wounded in the knee, which would eventually result in the amputation of his leg, but he did manage to escape capture. 
Twenty-one of the other artillerymen in Battery I fell dead or wounded. All the guns were abandoned because half of the battery's horses were killed. Meanwhile, the rest of Barksdale's brigade drove in the left flank of the Excelsior Brigade. General Burney, now in command of the Third Corps, and General Andrew Humphreys attempted to stabilize their defensive line, but the New Yorkers of the Excelsior Brigade began to run and the line collapsed. Of the Excelsiors, only the 120th New York made a determined stand against Barksdale's Mississippians to the south and Wilcox's Alabamians to the west, but they too begrudgingly retreated when it was realized that there was no reason to keep holding. The 120th suffered more than 200 casualties in about 30 minutes of action. Flush with the feeling of victory, Barksdale's brigade began to break apart after smashing two Union brigades and wheeling left and then right to face Cemetery Ridge. Several regimental commanders urged Barksdale to halt and reform the brigade. Where even was the 21st Mississippi? But he refused to halt their momentum. Quote, No, crowd them. We have them on the run. Move your regiments. Unquote. Sometime after he said this, he lifted his sword in the air and shouted, quote, Brave Mississippians, one more charge and the day is ours. Unquote. Again, the gray and butternut clad soldiers surged forward to finish off the job they'd started. Private Joseph Lloyd, an infantryman of the 13th Mississippi, went forward with the brigade past the Emmitsburg Road toward Plum Run. As he neared the banks of the dry stream bed, he felt a thud, and he went down. He'd been shot in the arm. After another soldier helped him fix a sling, Private Lloyd began to make his way to the rear to get treatment for his wounded limb. After walking a little ways, he found General Barksdale, lying wounded on the ground. Only minutes before had the wispy-haired fire-eater been on his horse, urging his troops to press the attack. Seeing no one else around, Lloyd approached his brigade commander and offered him a drink of water. Barksdale took a swig from his canteen, but the private noticed that the water seeped out a giant hole in his chest. Barksdale had been wounded three times, once in the knee by a mini-ball, in the left foot by artillery shrapnel, and finally another bullet in the chest, which had knocked him off his horse. Allegedly, after the third wound, he told his aide, quote, I am killed. Tell my wife and children that I died fighting at my post. Unquote. A little hack, but dramatic nonetheless. William Barksdale remained on the battlefield until after the fighting concluded on July 2nd, when he was captured by federal forces and died the next morning in a Union field hospital. To the north advanced the brigades of Anderson's division. Both Wilcox and Lang's brigades were raked by artillery fire as they advanced across the open field between Pitzer and Spangler's Woods towards the Emmitsburg Road. After a fierce firefight with the skirmishers of Carr's brigade and Brewster's Excelsior brigade, the Alabamians marched forward crying the rebel yell. Union troops shouted, here they come, as the two lines of infantry erupted in musket fire. General David Burney was trying to maintain the 3rd Corps defensive line, and attempted to reform it by having Humphreys pull the left wing of the division back where it would connect with the rest of the 3rd Corps in a line down to Little Round Top. Humphreys thought this plan was quote-unquote bosh, but did comply with Burney's orders, but it was too late at this point. The plan might have worked had Anderson's division not joined the attack, but Wilcox and Lang's soldiers overwhelmed Humphreys' line as Barksdale's troops were pouring in a devastating enfilade fire into their left flank. Not long after, Burney sent orders, which canceled his last directive. He now wanted Humphreys to pull his brigade back from the Emmitsburg Road to Cemetery Ridge. By this point, the Union troops in the area of the Wheatfield and the Devil's Den must have been completely driven off, and there was no chance of reclaiming that ground. Humphreys brooded after the battle that he had been put in a difficult position, and maintained that he only retreated because he had been ordered to. He also complained that because Burling's brigade had been essentially taken away from him to reinforce other parts of the line that he didn't have enough troops. 
Just after the battle, he wrote to his wife, quote, Had my division been left intact, I should have driven the enemy back. But the ruinous bait, it doesn't deserve the name of system, of putting troops into position and then drawing off its reserves and second line to help others who, if not similarly dispossessed, would need no such help is disgusting, unquote. However, General Carr disagreed with his division commander, though it should be noted that several of his own subordinates accused him of cowardice. As soon as Carr received the order to fall back, he quite willingly obeyed. Because of the chaos and intensity of the battle, it took time to communicate the orders to the regimental and company commanders to retreat. Humphrey's division fell back in a deliberate manner, particularly Carr's brigade. Though they were outnumbered and their position was nearly turned, the Bay Staters, Granite Staters, New Jerseyans, and Pennsylvanians did not break and run. They would move away to the east, reform and fire, and repeat as they made their way towards Cemetery Ridge. Doing so resulted in heavy casualties on their side. Of the roughly 1,700 soldiers in Carr's brigade, nearly 50% became casualties, with 120 dead and over 600 wounded. In the Army of the Potomac, only the Iron Brigade lost more men wounded. Brewster's Excelsior Brigade suffered just as greatly as Carr men, with slightly more dead and slightly less wounded. Large number of the regimental and company commanders were wounded, which did cause the retreat to become more chaotic and disorganized the longer it went on. The 11th New Jersey went through five leaders. Colonel Robert McAllister was wounded early in the fight. Shortly after that, Major Philip J. Kearney was mortally wounded, and then Captain Luther Martin was killed. Lieutenant John Schoonover, who wasn't even a company commander, briefly took charge of the regiment, but also fell wounded from a mini-ball. They were taking fire from their front and from their left. The 11th New Jersey sustained 60% casualties. They'd had enough that day, and retreated to safety where a wounded Captain William Lloyd would take command of the regiment. General Carr was wounded at some point in the fight, but not seriously enough to be removed from the field. General Humphreys was not shot, but an artillery shell burst only a few feet away from him and killed his horse, throwing him to the ground in the process. He was praised for his leadership and courage during the battle, though he later came to somewhat regret not ordering a more hasty retreat. Thousands of his soldiers were wounded and killed, futilely holding ground that they shouldn't have been on in the first place. The Confederate attack around the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road was still going strong, but was becoming wildly disorganized. Barksdale's brigade was more like a rabble of armed men at that point. Wilcox's brigade had also faced similar problems. When it advanced, the 9th Alabama became separated and ended up on the other side of the bulk of Barksdale's men, with the 21st Mississippi on its right. Lang's Florida brigade advanced across the open field toward the Union lines at a double quick. After hopping fences and marching around houses and farm buildings, they too had a difficult time maintaining their formation. Two more rebel brigades of Anderson's division were ordered to advance. Brigadier General Carnot Posey's Mississippi Brigade and Ambrose Wright's Georgia Brigade. Both Posey and Wright were pre-war lawyers. Posey was 44 and had grown up the son of a wealthy slaveholding cotton planter. He had been a successful lawyer and was the U.S. District Attorney for Southern Mississippi at the outbreak of the Civil War. He also served as an officer in Jefferson Davis's volunteer regiment in the Mexican War. Ambrose Ransom Wright, better known as Rans, was 37 and had operated a successful law practice in Georgia. He hoped to enter politics but had thus far been unsuccessful in his electoral attempts. Wright's brigade advanced on Perry's left, and not long after the Floridians began their march across the open field toward Union lines. A few hundred yards in front of Posey's position was the farm owned by William Bliss. The Bliss Farm was close to the town itself, less than a quarter mile to the southeast. William, his wife Adeline, and their three children moved to Gettysburg in the late 1850s from New York. At the time of the battle, William and Adeline Bliss were in their early 60s, and their two youngest daughters lived with them. 
but sometime on the afternoon of July 1st, the family fled as the battle began to encroach on their home. Because of its position between Seminary and Cemetery Ridge, it sat in the no-man's land of the battlefield. All throughout the morning and early afternoon of July 2nd, skirmishers from General Alfred Scales' North Carolina Brigade and Colonel George Willard's New York Brigade of the 2nd Corps fought over the farm. Willard was a new arrival to the Army of the Potomac. He was a 35-year-old New Yorker who had volunteered as a private in the U.S. Army during the Mexican War, and by the time of the Civil War, he had risen to the rank of captain. After the Peninsula Campaign, he commanded the 125th New York Infantry Regiment, which was part of the surrender of Harper's Ferry during the Maryland Campaign. Eventually, he and the soldiers of the regiment were exchanged for Confederate prisoners, and they returned to service, though with greatly tarnished reputations, as part of the garrison defending Washington, D.C. After some reshuffling, the brigade that they belonged to was assigned to the Army of the Potomac earlier in June. The brigade commander, Brigadier General Alexander Hayes, was promoted to division command, and Willard succeeded Hayes. The rest of Willard's brigade was also made up of New York regiments that had surrendered at Harper's Ferry. Early on the 2nd, the New Yorkers captured Bliss's farmhouse and barn and used it to snipe at rebel artillery and infantry positions to the west. Eventually, General Hayes decided to relieve Willard's men and replace them with skirmishers from Colonel Thomas Smith's brigade. Smith, a 30-year-old native of Ballyhoo, Ireland, immigrated from his country to the United States in the 1850s where he settled first in Philadelphia and then later in Wilmington, Delaware. He worked as a woodcarver and carriage maker, but also notably joined William Walker's filibustering expedition to Central America. In 1856, William Walker and 5,000 mercenaries invaded Nicaragua. After he declared himself president, he ruled for nearly a year until his mercenary force was defeated and he returned to the U.S. Smith was not the only filibusterer at Gettysburg. Only a few hundred yards to the west was the Confederate officer Colonel Burkett D. Fry, another one of Walker's mercenaries, who now commanded Archer's Tennessee Brigade. Smith's soldiers replaced Willard's men and held the Bliss Farm until the skirmishers of Posey's brigade retook the property. After a failed attempt from Company B of the 106th Pennsylvania to retake the farm, General Hayes directed Smith's men to drive them out. Skirmishers of the 12th New Jersey, led by Captain Samuel Jobes, first captured the barn, and then after Hayes demanded, quote, the men in the barn to take that damned white house and hold it at all hazards, the New Jerseyans did so as well, and took nearly 100 prisoners in the process. When federal troops took back the Bliss Farm, the battle at Little Round Top, Devil's Den, and the Wheatfield was raging. About an hour and a half later, when Anderson's division made their advance, Wright's brigade went forward in support of Lang's brigade, and Posey was supposed to follow suit, but many of his men were already wiped out from intense close combat around the Bliss property. Posey's Mississippians once again advanced on the Bliss farm, this time in full strength, and drove out the defending New Jerseyans once and for all. By this time, Wilcox and Lang's brigades had driven away the remnants of the 3rd Corps from the Emmitsburg Road, and the Georgians of Wright's brigade were advancing through a thick hail of artillery fire on their left, but in their front was only light resistance. When General Winfield Scott Hancock had ordered Caldwell's division to move to retake the wheat field and the Rose Farm, it left a large gap between General John Gibbon's division and the nearest Union position on Little Round Top. Once Humphrey's division had melted away from the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road, there was nothing in this gap except the retreating soldiers of the 3rd Corps. The Confederates continued towards Cemetery Ridge, and they gradually came into the range of Union muskets. Rand's right sensed that something was wrong. Quote, we were in a hot place, and looking to my left through the smoke, I perceived that neither Posey nor Mahone had advanced, and that my left was totally unprotected. Unquote. Posey's men got bogged down retaking the Bliss Farm, and after they recaptured the buildings, only two regiments, the 48th and 19th Mississippi, continued forward. 
Posey later wrote in his post-battle report, quote, In the afternoon, I received an order to advance after Brigadier General Wright, who was posed on my right in a woods before the advance was made. I received an order from the Major General through his aide-de-camp, Captain Estes Shannon, to advance but two of my regiments and deploy them closely as skirmishers. I had then a thin line of skirmishers in front, and once sent out the 48th and 19th regiments, Colonel Jane and Colonel Harris commanding. These regiments advanced some 200-300 yards beyond the barn and house." Unquote. There's a lot of confusion as to why Posey's brigade did not continue their advance beyond the Bliss Farm. Wright sent couriers to General Anderson and directly to Posey asking for support on his left. Anderson supposedly said that he'd ordered the brigade forward, but those orders must not have been received. Posey maintained that he had not been directed to advance. We'll talk a little more about this later. Meanwhile, to the south, the bulk of McClaw's division and Ty Anderson's brigade continued to press forward after they'd driven the Yankees out of the wheat field and across Plum Run. Wofford's brigade moved in the direction of the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge, while Kershaw, Sims, and Anderson's brigades advanced in the direction of the low valley between the ridge and Little Roundtop. Hood's assault on Little Roundtop had already petered out, and with the exception of Anderson's Georgians, the majority of his division was stretched from Helks Ridge down to Big Roundtop, and was too exhausted to keep fighting. Weed and Vincent's brigades held Little Roundtop, and the majority of regiments of Weed's brigade had yet to see action. While the battle was raging, General Meade had been quite active in monitoring the situation, and moving troops from different sectors of his line to meet new threats. As I've talked about numerous times already, this is where the advantage of interior lines really came into play, and had a great effect on the outcome of the battle on July 2nd. Lieutenant Colonel Francis A. Walker, the Assistant Adjutant General of the 2nd Corps, later wrote, quote, Few commanders ever showed more resolution in fighting a seemingly lost battle, or stripped other parts of their lines with less hesitation. If one will compare the energy in which this action was conducted by General Meade with the previous experiences of the Army of the Potomac, one cannot fail to acknowledge that never before had the divisions of that army so closely supported each other or been so unreservedly thrown into the fight when and where most needed." Unquote. In fact, Meade might have been a tad overzealous in stripping certain parts of the army to reinforce his center and left, but his actions seemed necessary in the moment. So far, he'd moved the entire 5th Corps to support the left wing, followed by Caldwell's division. Caldwell's command was badly beaten on the ground of the Rose Farm, and most of the 5th Corps, with the exception of Weed and Vincent's brigades on Little Roundtop, had been badly mauled. Only the newly added 3rd Division of the 5th Corps had yet to see action. Meade had spent most of the battle just north of Little Roundtop, but as the fighting gradually moved northward, so did he. At this time, he was on Cemetery Ridge near the center of the attack. The growing darkness and smoke made it difficult to know exactly what was happening on the battlefield, but Meade continued to communicate orders to his corps and division commanders to plug any hole in the line. He learned of Sickles' wound and Burney's ascension to command of the 3rd Corps, and subsequently told General Hancock that he was now in command of both his own 2nd Corps and what was left of the 3rd. Just before that, he decided to strip the majority of the 12th Corps from Culp's Hill. All of General Alpheus Williams' division was removed from their defensive works, as well as most of General John Geary's division and the independent brigade of General Henry Lockwood. Only Brigadier General George Green's brigade and General James Wadsworth's division of the 1st Corps were left on Culp's Hill. General Williams is technically commander of the 12th Corps at this time, because General Henry Slocum was commander of the right wing of the army. Williams' division was temporarily under the command of Brigadier General Thomas Ruger. Williams personally led the 1st Division and Lockwood's brigade toward the southern end of Cemetery Ridge. Behind him was supposed to be Geary's division, but somehow they vanished. 
It seems that Geary was not provided with any kind of guide and was expected to follow General Ruger, but he had lost him in the darkness and instead of turning down the Granite Schoolhouse Road, continued down the Baltimore Pike until it practically had marched off the battlefield. When the mistake was realized, they turned around and countermarched, but by then the battle had been decided. With Geary's division missing in action, Meade sent orders to General John Newton to take available troops from the 1st Corps on Cemetery Hill and support Hancock on the ridge. Meade had one more corps in reserve, General John Sedgwick's 6th. He sent orders to Sedgwick to move his corps into position to be of support to any part of the line that might need it. This was a difficult task, considering that the Confederate attack was more than a mile in length with Posey's brigade opposite Ziegler's Grove on Cemetery Hill, and Tyg Anderson's near Little Round Top to the south. The rebel assault on the southern end of the line continued to roll forward, but it was losing steam. Their only hope was to punch through the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge. Perhaps they could then finally turn north and roll up the Union line, or turn Weed's and Vincent's brigades on Little Round Top. Maybe they'd continue forward to occupy the Baltimore Pike, the lifeline of the Army of the Potomac. But the rebels were stopped dead in their tracks by the timely arrival of the 3rd Division of the 5th Corps, the Pennsylvania Reserves. When President Lincoln called for volunteers in 1861, Pennsylvania mustered more regiments than the federal government could support, and the excess troops were organized into a division that ultimately became known as the Pennsylvania Reserves. They fought in every major engagement in the Eastern Theater from the Peninsula Campaign to Fredericksburg, but had spent the last few months in Washington, D.C., Former reserves commanders included the late General John Reynolds and General Meade. Two of the reserve brigades were attached to the 5th Corps when Joe Hooker received reinforcements the month before. They were led by Brigadier General Samuel Crawford. Crawford was 33 years old and a native of Franklin County, Pennsylvania, which was the next county over to the west of Adams County in which Gettysburg sat. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1846 and then Penn's Medical School in 1850. He entered the Army the following year and served as an assistant surgeon until 1861. In April of 61, he was stationed at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Though he was the surgeon on duty, he commanded some of the fort's guns during the Confederate attack that ignited the war. Following the surrender, he left the medical profession and accepted a major's commission in an infantry regiment. Within a year, he'd reached the rank of brigadier general and led a brigade during the Valley, 2nd Manassas, and Maryland campaigns. Earlier in 1863, he was promoted to command of the Pennsylvania Reserves Division. Because they left behind their 2nd Brigade, the Reserves were one of the smallest divisions in the Army with less than 3,000 soldiers. His 1st Brigade was led by Colonel William McCandless, a 28-year-old Irishman who immigrated with his family to Philadelphia as a boy. A lawyer before the war, he enlisted in the Reserves as a private, but in little more than a year had moved up to Colonel. The 3rd Brigade was commanded by Colonel Joseph Fisher, a 49-year-old Pennsylvania lawyer and former state representative. The reserves came down the Wheatfield Road between Little Round Top and Cemetery Ridge. A soldier in the 12th Pennsylvania Reserves later recalled, quote, As we advanced, we began to meet wounded men returning. Soon the road was so encumbered with wounded walking to the rear and ambulances going the same way, we had to take to the woods along the side of the road, unquote. Crawford formed the reserves into two battle lines, with McCandless's brigade in front and Fisher's brigade in reserve. As they neared Plum Run Valley, a member of the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves, also known as the 1st Pennsylvania Rifles and the 1st Bucktails, said that he, quote, looked down over the field of carnage, could hear the victorious shouts of the enemy, and when the smoke of the battlefield lifted momentarily, caught glimpse of fleeing friends and hotly pursuing foes, the general outlook being anything but reassuring, unquote. The color bearer of the 1st Pennsylvania caught a stray bullet and fell. 
Crawford, who was nearby, ran over and grabbed the flag and yelled, Four reserves! Marching at a double-quick pace, they moved toward the advancing rebels until they were within close musket range. The Pennsylvanians halted, fired two volleys, and, bayonets drawn, charged the Confederates. The Georgians and South Carolinians of Anderson's, Sims, and Kershaw's brigades were finally stopped, violently thrown back by the reserves over the ground they fought over for the past four hours. About a hundred yards to the north, General Longstreet rode to the front and found General Wofford. Longstreet, who had a bigger picture of the battle, ordered Wofford to pull his brigade back. The Georgians had seen nothing but success on July 2nd, having driven away multiple Union brigades and had just captured Lieutenant Aaron Walcott's 3rd Massachusetts Battery. He reluctantly complied with the order, and his brigade fell back beyond the wheat field. General McClaws was unaware of Longstreet's order and found an angry Wofford riding back with his troops. McClaws surveyed the scene and concluded that while he was annoyed with Longstreet's micromanaging, his commander was in the right. More federal reinforcements had arrived. General Frank Wheaton's brigade of the 6th Corps came to support the right wing of the Pennsylvania Reserves and advanced through the property of Jacob Weikert. Had Wofford's men continued forward, they would have been violently confronted by the soldiers of Wheaton's brigade and likely by at least one brigade of the Pennsylvania Reserves on their right. The four Confederate brigades that had made the final assault on the Union left fell back to the Rose property west of the wheat field, while the Federals went back east on Plum Run. Wheaton's brigade settled into position on the J. Weikert farm in Weikert's woods. Final actions on the southern end of the battlefield involved an effort by Federal forces of the V Corps to secure Big Round Top. Colonel Rice, now in command of Vincent's brigade, sent Colonel Chamberlain in the 20th Maine to take possession of the Bigger Hill. General Crawford also sent Fisher's brigade of the Pennsylvania Reserves along with them. The Federals clumsily stumbled around in the dark up the rocky slopes and several times came close to firing on each other. The Mainers did run into some light resistance from the remnants of Law's brigade, which they'd driven from Little Round Top not long before, but did manage to reach the crest of Round Top. Skirmishing would continue throughout the evening across Plum Run Valley between Hood's Rebels on the western slope of Big Round Top and the Devil's Den area, and various brigades of Sykes' V Corps on the eastern side. While the action was coming to a close around the Round Tops, the increasingly disorganized Confederate attack was still rolling forward to the north between the Emmitsburg Road and Cemetery Ridge. Barksdale's brigade approached Plum Run. The brigade was slowed and came further apart as they crossed the swale of the dry creek bed. General Hancock, who was desperately riding around trying to organize the resistance to stop the Confederate assault, personally led the New York Brigade commanded by Colonel George Willard to counter the Mississippians. Willard deployed his four regiments into a battle line just north of the George Weikert farm, and led them forward when Hancock gave them the order to advance. Around this same time, Wilcox's Alabamians made their final push on Cemetery Ridge. In their front was a loose collection of soldiers from Humphrey's division, and one lone regiment belonging to the 2nd Corps. The first Minnesota. Minnesota had only been a state for three years when the Civil War began. The first was largely made up of men who had been in a militia unit known as the Pioneer Home Guard of St. Paul. They gathered the day after the surrender of Fort Sumter and most positively answered Governor Ramsey's call for a thousand volunteers for Lincoln's army. They were the only regiment from Minnesota in the Army of the Potomac and had fought in every campaign of the Eastern Theater from First Bull Run to Chancellorsville. Their numbers had been greatly reduced from two years of hard fighting. At the time of the battle, the first was led by Colonel William J. Colville. Colville was a 33-year-old native of western New York and, like many officers on either side, was a lawyer by trade. He studied law in the office of future President Millard Fillmore in Buffalo before moving out to Minnesota in 1854. He settled in Red Wing and started a Democratic newspaper. 
He'd been a staunch supporter of the democracy before the war, but was supposedly the first man from Goodhue County to volunteer to fight for the Union in 1861. He began the war as a captain of Company F of the 1st Minnesota, which he led until his promotion to regimental command just a little more than a week before the Battle of Gettysburg. In fact, when the battle began, he was still under arrest. During the march north from Virginia, several officers and soldiers of the regiment had broken formation to walk on logs while crossing a stream instead of just wading through the water. The Inspector General of the 2nd Corps, Lt. Col. Charles Morgan, had ordered them not to do so and was later jeered at by the Minnesotans who made animal noises and groaned as he rode by. Because of this insubordination, Morgan had Colville and another officer arrested. On the morning of the 2nd, Colville, who was still under arrest, went to his brigade commander, Brigadier General William Harrow, and asked for permission to be released from arrest so he could join his regiment in time for the coming battle, which Harrow granted. When Hancock spotted them on Cemetery Ridge, the 1st Minnesota had less than 300 combined soldiers and officers. Exact figures are debated, but most accounts claim they only had about 262 men, but it's likely the number was a little bit higher, probably close to 280 or so. Regardless, the lack of soldiers in the area alarmed Hancock, who exclaimed, quote, My God, are these all the men we have here? Unquote. In most accounts of the battle, it's alleged that the next thing he said was, What regiment is this? Colonel Colville simply responded, First Minnesota. The short exchange is one of those famous moments in Gettysburg history, but it likely never happened. If Hancock asked what regiment it was, he clearly never got an answer because in his post-battle report, he claimed not to know. Likewise, if Colville was asked a question, he never heard it. Whatever the case, Hancock ordered the regiment to charge. He later recognized the desperation of the order. Quote, Reinforcements were coming on the run, but I knew that before they could reach the threatened point the Confederates, unless checked, would seize the position. I would have ordered that regiment in if I had known that every man would be killed. It had to be done. Unquote. Lieutenant William Lochran wrote after the war, quote, Every man realized in an instant what the order meant death or wounds to us all, the sacrifice of the regiment to gain a few minutes' time and save the position, and probably the battlefield." Unquote. Colville ordered the Minnesotans to charge forward at the double quick to meet the oncoming Confederate attackers. On their left was Willard's brigade, still hotly engaged with Barksdale's Mississippians and possibly the right wing of Wilcox's Alabama brigade. The first moved toward the center of Wilcox's line, which had moved down the gradual slope from the Emmitsburg Road into the depression of Plum Run. The first was a well-disciplined veteran regiment that moved swiftly as a single unit, while under fire from as many as three or four rebel regiments. Wilcox's brigade began the fight with as many as 1,600 soldiers. At this point, their formation had descended into a glorified mob, and they'd taken some casualties, so it's difficult to say exactly how many had reached Plum Run. But the first Minnesota was likely outnumbered some four or five to one. As the Minnesotas closed in, they began to take casualties. Many of the rebel minivolts went over their heads because of the sloping nature of the terrain, but at least a dozen were wounded in the first phase of the charge. Sergeant Matt Marvin later wrote in his journal, quote, We had not fired a musket, and the rebs were firing rapidly. I dropped to the ground with a wound somewhere. I picked myself up as quick as possible, where I saw blood on my shoe, the heel of which was tore out. I thought it was a slight one, and run to catch up, thinking no rebel line could stand a charge of my regiment, and if the bayonet must be used, I wanted a chance in, as it was free to all. I had just catched up again when I fell a second time, too faint to get up." Unquote. Others were less lucky. Captain Lewis Muller, who led Company E, received a bullet in the head and died instantly, as did Lieutenant James de Grey. Captain Joseph Perriam, likewise, was shot in the nose, 
Ball exited through the back of his skull and lived for five more days before succumbing to his horrific wound. But on they came. When they were only a few yards away, Colonel Colville finally shouted the order to charge. The Minnesotans leveled their muskets to face the enemy, and with a Union hurrah, stormed the rubble position along the creek bed. Lieutenant William Lochran would later say, quote, The men were never made who will stand against leveled bayonets coming with such momentum and evident desperation. The first line broke in our front as we reached it, and rushed back through the second line, stopping the whole advance." Unquote. They returned fire on the Alabamians with a devastating volley of musket fire. An intense battle was developing along Plum Run, with the 1st Minnesota and Willard's Brigade on the east side and Wilcox's and Barksdale's Brigade on the west side. Colonel Colville later recalled, quote, I never saw chiller work done on either side, and the destruction was awful. One of the last things I remember was one of the color guard turning to me as he was raising his weapon to fire, making some remark with a smile on his face. Owing to the blinding smoke, we could see distinctly only at intervals. There was a gleam of light, in which my glance took in the slope on my left. I saw large numbers of our men lying upon it as they had fallen. Then came a shock, like a sledgehammer on my backbone, between the shoulders. It turned me partially around and made me see stars." Unquote. Colville was shot in the shoulder. The bullet hit a spine on its way through his body. Shortly after, he received a second wound in his ankle. Though greatly outnumbered, his regiment held their own, but was slowly being outflanked on both sides. His left flank was saved by the action of Colonel Willard and his New Yorkers. Unbeknownst to Willard, the veteran Mississippians they attacked were among the soldiers that had forced their surrender at Harper's Ferry some nine months ago. On July 2nd, the New Yorkers sought to redeem that humiliation. The rebels fired at them as they advanced. Some returned fire without orders until Willard told them to cease. The Yankees advanced in a slow, deliberate manner. When they were only a few yards away, the rebels again unleashed a volley of musket fire, and for a few moments the two sides hammered away at each other. Willard's men shouted, Remember Harper's Ferry! and drove the Confederates out of the banks of Plum Run. With bayonets drawn, they continued advancing westward until they got about to the Emmitsburg Road, where they were met with intense artillery fire from Colonel Alexander's guns. They began to withdraw. They did manage to recapture some of the artillery pieces that had been lost earlier in the fight. As Colonel Willard recrossed Plum Run, an artillery shell came whizzing in and exploded. A shell fragment ripped off his face, and George Willard was killed instantly. To the south, the 21st Mississippi captured Lieutenant Malbone Watson's battery eye and attempted to turn the guns on the Federals, but there was no equipment to actually fire the cannons. Colonel Benjamin Humphreys looked around and for a brief moment felt that the battle had been won. There were no troops in his front, and as far as he knew, the rest of the brigade had continued their advance eastward and the rest of McClaw's division was still attacking to the south. But as Humphreys surveyed the scene, he realized that the Mississippians on his left were falling back, and Wofford's Georgians were doing the same on his right. He then gave the order to his regiment to fall back, and almost the same time that the 39th New York of Willard's brigade charged in to retake Watson's battery. 12th Corps reinforcements arrived as well. Marylanders of Lockwood's brigade charged in to help Willard's men finish up the job of clearing the rebels from their front. General Cadmus Wilcox also felt that their chance of success was fading. He'd sent couriers to General Anderson with requests for reinforcements, which he was assured would be coming. His brigade was losing stamina, and like the rest of Anderson's division, had trouble staying together as it advanced towards Cemetery Ridge. Barksdale's men had retreated on his right, and due to the smoke and growing darkness, he couldn't see the Florida brigade on his left. His brigade had delivered a heavy blow to the 1st Minnesota, but he now feared that he was in danger of being enveloped on both flanks. 
Not long after the Mississippians had fallen back beyond the Emmitsburg Road, Wilcox ordered his Alabamians to do the same. He would maintain well after the battle that he initiated the retreat, and they were not compelled by the Minnesotans to do so. On their left, Lang's Floridians were actually still attacking. Like the brigades on their right, they too stopped at Plum Run. While attempting to reorganize, they came under fire from federal soldiers, likely a mixture of the 19th Maine and rallied soldiers of Humphrey's division. Lang received reports that Wilcox's brigade was falling back and that the Yankees were advancing on his right. The last Confederate brigade to assault Cemetery Ridge was the one that made the most progress. General Rand's right and his brigade had met light resistance during the initial phase of the attack. Only the 15th Massachusetts and the 82nd New York of Harrow's brigade stood in their way along the Emmitsburg Road. Combined, they had just over 600 men and officers. The 1,400 Georgians of Wright's brigade smashed through both. Colonel George Hull Ward, commander of the 15th Massachusetts, had also been arrested with Colonel Colville a few days earlier, but was also released just before the battle. During the assault, Ward was struck by a piece of shrapnel from an artillery shell and died from the wound the following day. 36 other men in the regiment would also be killed in the fight or die of wounds. Another 90 were wounded, and 20 or so were missing. The 82nd New York fared no better. Between July 2nd and 3rd, it suffered 192 casualties, and Lieutenant Colonel James Houston was one. Houston was an Irishman, and like many Irish officers, he was a former member of the Irish independence movement called Young Ireland. On the march to Gettysburg, he was promoted to colonel, but on July 2nd, a rebel miniball struck him in the head, and he died from the wound a few hours later, before he was mustered in at his new rank. The Georgians continued forward, and overran Captain Thomas Brown's Battery B of the 1st Rhode Island Artillery. Brown and 16 others were wounded, and 7 were killed in the fight. Three of his 12-pounder Napoleons were abandoned between the Kadori Farm and Cemetery Ridge. Wright could see a gap in the Union line on the ridge in their front. On their left were two brigades of General John Gibbon's division, and to the right were the rallied men of the 3rd Corps, the 19th Maine, and the 1st Minnesota. Like Wilcox had done not long before, Wright sent back couriers begging for reinforcements. The gunsmoke that carpeted the battlefield and the lack of daylight led him to believe that Lang's brigade had not crossed the Emmitsburg Road, but they had almost made it as far as his own troops. General Posey's Mississippi Brigade, on the other hand, had not made it past the road. It had basically stopped when it had driven the federal troops out of the Bliss Farm and awaited further orders. Dick Anderson still had one brigade left to throw in the fight. General William, Little Billy Mahone, had been ordered earlier to follow the advance of Posey's brigade, but inexplicably had not left their position at McMillan's Woods on Seminary Ridge. What exactly happened? It's hard to tell because the reports from those involved were pretty scant. Powell Hill only wrote that Wilcox, Lang, and Wright's brigades had advanced in echelon and had done well. Dick Anderson likewise only mentioned that Wilcox, Lang, Wright, and Posey had advanced and fell back in that order. Mahone's inactivity isn't mentioned at all. Little Billy Mahone's report is one of the smallest of any general that lived to write one. It basically just says that they acted as skirmishers in support of Major Willie Pegram's artillery battalion. We'll never know what happened, but it seemed as if there was a severe breakdown in the command structure. Fighting Dick Anderson seemed to leave the fighting to his brigade commanders, and didn't much interfere with them after orders were given. Likewise, General Hill wasn't very involved in the handling of his corps once the plan was set in motion. And where was General Lee in all of this? After Lee had been with Longstreet during the march, he rode back to the Lutheran Seminary where he would remain for most of the day. British Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Fremantle, who spent most of the battle on July 2nd observing the action from a tree on Seminary Ridge, recorded this in his journal. Quote, 
So as soon as the firing began, General Lee joined Hill just below our tree, and he remained there nearly all the time, looking through his field glasses, sometimes talking to Hill and sometimes to Colonel Long of his staff. But generally, he sat quite alone on the stump of a tree. What I remarked especially was that during the whole time firing continued, he only sent one message and only received one report. It is evidently his system to arrange the plan thoroughly with the three corps commanders, and then leave them to the duty of modifying and carrying it out to the best of their abilities. Unquote. Therein lies one of the biggest flaws with the Confederate attack on July 2nd. Lee, who was used to working with active and capable corps commanders like Longstreet and the late Jackson, expected Hill and Ewell, whose attack on July 2nd I'll talk about in the next episode, to be able to carry out his orders with little interference or guidance. James Longstreet was quite active on July 2nd, so much so that it annoyed his division commander, Lafayette McClaws. On the other hand, A.P. Hill spent the majority of July 2nd in the rear with R.E. Lee. He left it to General Anderson to lead the attack. Anderson, likewise, was very hands-off during the battle. Though he apparently sent couriers to both Posey and Mahone to advance on Wright's left, neither did and from the brigade level all the way up the chain to army command, there was a real failure to see that the attack was executed properly. That's not to say that those two brigades not committing to the assault was the only thing that went wrong for the Confederates on July 2nd. As we've discussed with Hood and McClaw's divisions, there were problems as well. And when we get to the second corps attack on Culp's and Cemetery Hill in a later episode, we'll see that there were issues there that contributed to the failure of the rebels on day 2 as well. Conversely, the Federal commanders were quite active during the defense of Cemetery Ridge. Meade was close to the battlefield monitoring the situation, sending orders to subordinates, and using their advantage in interior lines to move troops to plug holes in their defense. The same was largely true for guys like Hancock and many of the division and brigade commanders. So far, they'd countered two of Anderson's brigades. To block the third, Meade turned to units of the First Corps, the fourth Union Corps that would be engaged in the defense against Longstreet and Hill's attack that day. A courier was sent to find General Newton on Cemetery Hill to bring all available reinforcements to the ridge. Newton in turn sent word to two of his division commanders, Generals John C. Robinson and Abner Doubleday. Doubleday, who was still quite sore about Newton's ascension to Corps Command, responded ably. The first unit ready to move was new to his division. It was the 2nd Vermont Brigade, which had just joined the Army of the Potomac on its march from Northern Virginia into Maryland and Pennsylvania. The Vermonters were all in nine-month enlistments that were about to expire. They'd been in the area of the capital since last October, and unbeknownst to Doubleday, were about to see the elephant for the first time. Doubleday found Colonel Francis V. Randall and asked him, quote, Colonel, what regiment do you command? Unquote. Randall responded, The 13th Vermont, sir. Doubleday then asked, Where is General Stannard? Stannard was the brigade commander. Randall pointed to a small grove of trees in the distance, which Doubleday realized was too far to reach in time. Because he was unfamiliar with the regiment, he asked Randall, Colonel, will your regiment fight? To which Randall replied, I believe they will, sir. He explained that he personally had fought in several battles, and though the regiment was untested, they were well trained and would do their duty. Doubleday then personally led the 13th from Cemetery Hill down the Tawnytown Road until it reached the crest of Cemetery Ridge. The Georgians continued up the slope of the ridge, while taking fire on both flanks. In between rallying units and directing reinforcements, Meade observed, quote, Will nothing stop these people? Unquote. This is from General Wright's post-battle report. Quote, we were now within less than 100 yards of the crest of the heights, which were lined with artillery, supported by a strong body of infantry, under protection of a stone fence. 
My men, by a well-directed fire, soon drove the cannoneers from their guns, and, leaping over the fence, charged up the top of the crest, and drove the enemy's infantry into a rocky gorge on the eastern slope of the heights, and some 80 or 100 yards in rear of the enemy's batteries. We were now complete masters of the field, having gained the key, as it were, of the enemy's whole line. Unfortunately, just as we had carried the enemy's last and strongest position, it was discovered that the brigade on our right had not only not advanced across the turnpike, but had actually given way, and was rapidly falling back to the rear, while on our left we were entirely unprotected, the brigade ordered to our support having failed to advance." Unquote. So at least according to Wright, the Confederates managed to drive off the Federal infantry and artillery from the crest of the ridge, and hold it for at least a short duration. Winfield Scott Hancock would later read Wright's account and emphatically balk at this claim. Not quite, I think, he said. It's possible that some of the Georgians did advance quite a ways up the ridge, perhaps to the crest, but it seems unlikely that they had actually gained a real foothold. Wright's description of the battlefield and the actions of his brigade don't match up with any Federal account. I think Wright's claims are a mixture of bragging and confusion. His men did advance further than any Confederate brigade on July 2nd, and for a brief moment there was a gap in the Federal line that he might have believed his troops created. And like I've said several times, the sun had set by this point, and the chaos created by the battle led Wright to think that he'd nearly achieved a sort of victory that wasn't sustained only because he'd received no support. Whatever level of success the Georgians attained, it was short-lived. Their left flank came under heavy fire from two brigades of infantry, and two artillery batteries. Lieutenant Alonzo Cushing and Captain William Arnold's batteries raked the Georgians with shell and then canister. The 48th Georgia, the leftmost regiment, struck the Union line along a low stone wall that ran north to south. Defending the wall was Colonel Norman Hall's brigade. Hall was a 26-year-old New Yorker turned Michigander, and West Point graduate whose appointment to the academy had been secured by Jefferson Davis. His old regiment, the 7th Michigan, and the 59th New York faced the 48th Georgia head-on while the 69th Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia Brigade, came in to support them and outflank the Georgians. The 69th poured in volley after volley of musket fire, and the 48th wavered and were brought to a halt. Other regiments of the Philadelphia Brigade moved in and devastated Wright's troops. The Philadelphians were led by Brigadier General Alexander S. Webb, who had taken command of the brigade only a few days before the battle. Like Colonel Hall, Webb was a fellow New Yorker, West Point graduate, and artilleryman. He'd spent most of the war as an officer in non-combat roles. Most recently, he'd served as Meade's chief of staff at Chancellorsville. Philadelphia Brigade's last commander, Brigadier General Joshua T. Owen, was arrested by General Gibbon and relieved of command for unknown reasons. The most likely explanation was that Gibbon, who was known as a martinet, felt that the Philadelphia Brigade lacked discipline, and General Owen was responsible for this. Gibbon once wrote that, quote, an army commander to be successful in the field must be as near a despot as the institutions of his country will permit, unquote. Initially, the Philadelphians disliked Alexander Webb, who was seen as a well-dressed and groomed dandy, and even worse, he was a New Yorker, but he won them over with his courage under fire and active leadership on July 2nd. While Hall's Michiganders and New Yorkers and Webb's Philadelphians pounded Wright's left, his right was fired upon by rallied men of Carr's and Brewster's brigades. And then reinforcements arrived. Colonel Francis Randall rode ahead of his 13th Vermont and found General Hancock on the ridge. Hancock yelled at him, quote, The enemy are pressing me hard. They have just captured that battery yonder and are dragging it from the field. Can you retake it? Unquote. Randall replied, quote, I can. Damn quick, too, if you will let me. Unquote. The regiment caught up with him and were ordered into a battle line and then forward at the double quick. 
The Vermonters drove the Georgians back, taking fire along the way. Wright's men were exhausted and had lost all momentum. Dozens of rebels threw down their weapons and surrendered, while the 13th Vermont continued their advance toward the Kadori farm along the Emmitsburg Road. On their right, the 102nd Pennsylvania did the same. The Philadelphians captured dozens of men of the 48th Georgia, along with their wounded commander, Colonel William Gibson. In all, over 150 soldiers and Wright's brigade were captured during the Federal counterattack. Along with the surrendered rebels, the Philadelphians and Vermonters retook several guns of Brown's and Weir's batteries that had been overrun by the Confederates. After Wright's brigades retreated west of the Emmitsburg Road, the assault of the Confederate 1st and 3rd Corps came to an end. Nearly four hours of fighting had resulted in high casualties, but the position of each army was relatively unchanged. Some 18,000 Confederate infantrymen from Hood's, McClaw's, and Anderson's divisions, plus several battalions of artillery, participated in the attack on July 2nd. It's a little harder to determine the exact number of Union defenders on July 2nd, but it was somewhere between 20 and 30,000. Casualties are even more difficult to determine for both sides because the totals weren't calculated until after the battle, but most estimates put the number for the Confederates at around 6,000 and 8 to 9,000 for the Federals. For some units, it would be remembered as the fiercest fighting they'd experienced at that point in the war. Even for veteran regiments like the 1st Minnesota, who had been in the Army of the Potomac since before it was even called the Army of the Potomac, were staggered by the ferocity of the fighting on the second day at Gettysburg. First ended the fight with around 280 men and officers, and after their scrape with Wilcox's brigade, they returned to their position on Cemetery Ridge with only 47 men unscathed. It's often claimed that their casualty rate was over 80%, which meant that it was the highest percentage of a single regiment lost in the battle, if not the entire war in the Eastern Theater. When the smoke had settled, the Army of the Potomac still held the high ground on the southern portion of the battlefield. The Yankees possessed both round tops, and would be reinforced over the night and the early morning. Troops from Cemetery Ridge would be moved to Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill after the fighting on the ridge had ceased because the battle on July 2nd was not over. General Richard Ewell would launch attacks basically after the primary assault had finished. General Dan Sickles' decision to move the Third Corps forward on July 2nd is one of the more debated moments of the battle. Was it a blunder of epic proportions, or was it unintentionally brilliant? Ultimately, I guess it's a little of both, but certainly more blunder than brilliance. Sickles inadvertently threw a roadblock in the way of the planned Confederate attack on July 2nd, which caused Longstreet to delay the attack and allowed more time for reinforcements to be brought up. The Third Corps was badly mauled. At least 40% of the Corps was killed, wounded, or captured. Only the 1st and 11th, both of which had been involved in the action on July 1st, suffered a greater casualty raid, but both of them had lost a much larger number of soldiers to capture in the retreat to Cemetery Hill. For the 3rd Corps, more than 3,000 men were wounded, with nearly 600 killed, and roughly the same number missing or captured. It was a bloody price to pay to act as a stormbreaker. The casualty rate amongst the regimental and company commanders was incredibly high. Of the 37 infantry regiments in the 3rd Corps, only 10 did not lose their 1st or 2nd in command to death, wounds, or capture. Three infantry brigade commanders were wounded, one of which was captured. Additionally, Captain George Randolph, the 3rd Corps artillery brigade chief, was wounded. Two of his battery commanders were wounded, and over 100 gunners became casualties. 
and of course Devil Dan himself was wounded and would not return to combat command, which for the Army of the Potomac might not have been a bad thing. I think the greatest argument to be made against the forward move of the Third Corps was if the Confederates had reached the Emmitsburg Road at the Peach Orchard and moved forward as planned, their right flank would have been exposed to the Federals along Cemetery Ridge and Little Round Top. If the Third Corps had deployed where they were supposed to go, I don't think that the three Confederate divisions would remove them. Sure, they wouldn't waste as much energy fighting for the Devil's Den, Peach Orchard, and the Wheat Field, but they're going to have to attack the Federals in a much more defensible position. The reinforcements that were thrown into the fight like Caldwell's or Ayer's divisions would have fared much better. The Union advantage in interior lines would have been much more effective had the Third Corps been closer to the main line. The Federals probably wouldn't take as many casualties. Perhaps the Confederates wouldn't make the attack at all had they realized the Army of the Potomac's right flank stretched as far south as it did, but knowing General Lee, they probably still would. Casualties in the Second and Fifth Corps varied. For the Second Corps, it's a bit difficult to determine exact casualty figures, but of Hancock's three divisions, it was his former command that saw the worst of it on July 2nd at the Wheat Field. Caldwell's division as a whole suffered 40% casualties, with each brigade losing roughly the same number of soldiers. Brooks's brigade fared the worst, with 50 dead, 285 wounded, and 50 missing, nearly half the brigade's total strength. The Irish Brigade entered the battle with just over 500 available soldiers and officers, and left with just around 330, a number so small that it could hardly be called a brigade anymore. Meade's old 5th Corps was thrown into various places to plug holes in the Union defense at the southern end of the battlefield. Some brigades like Schweitzer's and Burbank's took a real beating in the wheat field, while Vincent's brigade sacrificed a third of its strength to hold Little Round Top. Others like Weed's brigades or the Pennsylvania Reserve saw relatively little action, each coming in as the momentum of the rebel attack was waning, and in both cases launched counterattacks that saw only light resistance. The Confederate attacks were ultimately as fruitless as Longstreet had predicted. Though they'd pushed the Yankees and inflicted significant casualties, outright annihilated certain units, they did so at the cost of thousands of veteran soldiers who couldn't easily be replaced. Casualties among the officers were high as well. Every single one of the regiments in Kershaw's and Sims' brigades lost at least one colonel or lieutenant colonel. Colonel Benjamin Humphreys was the only regimental commander in Barksdale's brigade that came out unscathed. Two of Wright's regimental commanders were wounded and captured. One would later die from wounds. Another was killed in combat. Four brigade commanders were wounded, two of whom, Sims and Barksdale, would die. General John Bell Hood would recover from his bullet wound, but left the Army of Northern Virginia for good in the late summer. Another freak casualty was Major General Dorsey Pender, whose division had participated in the fighting on July 1st and was intended to join the assault on July 2nd after Anderson's division. While the battle was raging, an artillery shell fire from Cemetery Hill exploded near him, and a piece of shrapnel struck him in the thigh. Command of the division was passed down to Brigadier General James Lane, but Lane was unprepared to lead the attack, and the division never entered the fight. Dorsey Pender was transported to Stanton, Virginia, where he died on July 18, 1863, after an artery in his leg ruptured. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today, folks. But the fighting on July 2nd is far from finished. On the next episode, I'll be covering the Confederate assaults against Culp's and Cemetery Hills. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. I have seen him in the watch by the Bahamut circling camp. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damp. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamp.